We continue our study in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 15. Revelation 15. And time permitting, we'll go into chapter 16 as well. We'll re first read chapter 15, verses 1 to 8. 15, verse 1. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses and the bondservant of God and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their breasts with golden girdles. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. You know, in the book of Revelation and the rest of Scripture, there is always put in front of us what God does for the righteous, what blessings await them, and also what God does to the wicked. Sometimes this is in a single sentence, sometimes it's in a paragraph, sometimes it's in a chapter, sometimes it's among chapters, and even sometimes from book to book of the Bible. Here we see, as we saw in chapters uh, in chapter 14, we saw how the righteous are going to rejoice. Primarily, that is what was contained in the previous chapter. Now, we hear more about how they will rejoice in the things that God does. And then in chapter 16, the infliction of God's wrath on the people who reject God and who are wicked and refuse to repent of their sins. So this chapter 15 will focus on what God does for the righteous and actually how the righteous will rejoice in the work of God. Another thing we need to keep in mind is that some of these things uh, must be taken literally. Some of the truths here must be taken literally. And then those who take it more literally than others, they are those who see these events, the plagues, as actual historical events that will take place in the future and specifically in the time of the Great Tribulation, the seven-year period, and specifically the three and a half years of the last part of the Tribulation at that time. Others, though, will see that though there are some literal points here that, generally speaking, he's speaking of figurative things. This would be the idealistic interpretation, the one that sees this as a panoramic view of what God does throughout history, but eventually at the end of time. So, chapter 15, verse 1. The Apostle, Paul, or the Apostle John sees another sign in heaven. He sees a sign, this is great and marvelous. Usually when there is a sign here in the book of Revelation, such as there was in chapter 12, there is something that's great 
and cataclysmic. It's, uh, it's of ultimate uh, uh, circumstances and the end of time. Well, when he sees it, he says it's in heaven. Again, he's seeing a vision of what takes place above, not on the earth. And it's great and marvelous. He sees seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. Now, when we see uh, the seven plagues here, the seven plagues which are in the seven bowls, we note that earlier there were seven seals. That signified the beginning or the opening of God's wrath. Then we saw that there were seven trumpets, the announcement of God's wrath. And now here, seven plagues, and later we'll see they are in seven bowls, poured out, and these bowls are the actual manifestation of the wrath of God. There is a final and ultimate time when God's wrath will be poured out and finished. Verse 2, And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. He sees this sea of glass before the throne, and it's mixed with fire. He sees the sea, the, the platform of glass that looks like a sea, and he sees fire mixed with it. Whenever there is this sea uh, and platform and fire, we ought to think of the, the two things, the sea of glass, as though it is a, a powerful sea, but it's also a pleasant sea. Usually when it's calm and it's before God, it's not a tumultuous sea, but it's a calm, serene sea. But it's also mixed with fire, the fire of judgment. In the Bible, usually fire is associated with judgment. Judgment to test the righteous and to punish the wicked. And those who are there are those who come off victorious from the beast and from his image and the number of his name. These are victorious Christians. These are the saints who endure until the end. Now, according to one view, these are only those who are the ones saved in the Great Tribulation, who come off victorious from the Antichrist, here called the beast, and his image and number of his name. But another interpretation is the, to see that these are all the saints throughout history that John sees in heaven who are standing there with the harps of God. They're, and that's the view that I take here, that they are standing there with harps of God because they are singing. Yeah. They're singing, they're victorious, and they sing a song of praise to God, a song of praise, thanksgiving, redemption, and they extol the great attributes of God. Verse 3, they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. This song, it's a one song, it's right there in verses 3 and 4, but it has dual authorship or dual association. That is, it's the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Moses, here called the bondservant of God, therefore the song that Moses composes must be a good and right song because it's the song that he composes being a bondservant of God. He's not doing this as a slave or a bondservant of Satan. He's doing this as a bondservant of God. And then, as a matter of fact and obvious, it is the song of the Lamb. Therefore, if it's the song of the Lamb, it must be a good and righteous song to be sung. This song, in verses 3 and 4, have components 
that are from Exodus 15 and Deuteronomy 32. In both places, we have songs. In Exodus 15, it's, it's the song of Moses and the song of the sons of Israel, which they sang after they were delivered from Egypt. When the sea was parted and after it was parted, they were delivered, but the Egyptians behind them were destroyed because God engulfed the, the waters of the Red Sea upon them. They sang a song in Exodus 15 along these lines. And also in Deuteronomy 32, Deuteronomy 32 is a song that recounts God's faithfulness to Israel throughout the wilderness, but also it was a warning of future judgment because God is a righteous judge, that they would also be and could also be judged and punished when they live in the land of Canaan because of their own wickedness. God showed them that he was not going to be partial toward them. He punished the Canaanites, he punished the Egyptians, but he would also punish them if they refused. However, those who know God, those who repent of their sins, put their faith in the gospel of Christ, they can sing a song of redemption and a song that extols the great attributes of God. This is the song, verse 3. This is what they said. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. They acknowledge that God's work is great and marvelous. He is the Lord God, the Almighty, who can do as He pleases. He is righteous and true in all His ways. Righteous and true. There's nothing false in Him, and there's nothing unrighteous or wicked in what He does. Moses knows this. The Lamb knows this. And all the people who are standing there on the sea of glass holding harps of God know this too. This is the song that is jointly sung to God because He is the King of the nations. And He can, as King of the nations, He can rule them as He pleases. He can do whatever He wants. Verse 4, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify Your name? Who will not fear and glorify Your name, O Lord? God, as Creator and King of all the nations, He deserves our fear and our glory. Whatever praise we can give to Him, this is what we ought to do. Who will not do this? Who will not do this? The people who have been enlightened, the people who have been changed, the people whose eyes are open, they see and recognize this, and they praise God. They glory in His name. Because they recognize that He is holy, that He is holy. He alone is holy. Holy in that He's pure, that He's without sin. Holy in that He's distinct and different from all of us. He is unique and He deserves to be praised for this. And though the people of God sing this song of Moses and the Lamb, others will be compelled to bow down. Verse 4 says, For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. All the nations, not just all of the elect among all the nations, but all the nations, similar to Philippians 2, 9 to 11, where, where it says that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is in this sense that all the nations will come and worship. That which they did not do upon repentance and faith they were unwilling to do here they will do 
because they are compelled to do so. They will be before God Almighty and he will compel them to bow the knee before him because of his righteous acts. His righteous acts have been revealed. Again, as a prophet, he speaks in the past tense. And when he speaks in the past tense, he speaks as though it is something that has already occurred. God's righteous acts have been revealed. Whatever his righteous acts were, they are the ones that are throughout Scripture. And here, specifically in chapter 15, verse 5, through chapter 16, and even through the end of the book of the Re Revelation. Everything God does is righteous. There's nothing unrighteous. No one can ward off his hand and say, what have you done? As Nebuchadnezzar was forced to acknowledge in uh, Daniel 4.35. God's acts are righteous, so no one can impugn him. No one can accuse him of falsehood and wrongdoing. Even though he controls all things, he still can find fault with people. Romans 9.19 you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? The answer of the apostle was, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? No, it will not. And so God's actions, all of his actions are righteous and true. Now, verse 5, verses 5 and following. For after these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. The temple of, of heaven, which is also called a tabernacle and tabernacle of testimony. The testimony indicates the Ten Commandments being the testimony that was kept inside the tabernacle of Moses and then in the temple of Solomon. It was kept there. But here it says... It's in heaven. There is a temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven, and it is opened. Now, whether this is a literal temple or a figurative temple, we see why it's opened. God resides in the Holy of Holies. He resides in the innermost part of the sanctuary of the temple. He resides there, and when it's opened, He sends forth His will. He sends forth His word. Whatever His will is, he will accomplish it. And in this case, verse 6, it says, And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple. Came out of the temple. They came out, these, these seven angels come out to do God's will. And they have in their hand seven plagues, figuratively speaking. They have seven plagues and they come out of the temple. Then one is going to ask, naturally, is their action righteous or wicked? Is their action good or evil? It clarifies for us in verse 6. They come out clothed in linen, clean and bright. They come out in linen, clean and bright. Whenever there is clean and bright linen, pure linen, white linen, it has to do with righteous acts. They are clothed with righteousness to conduct righteous actions upon the earth. Also, it says, they are girded around their breasts with golden girdles. They love, uh, the, the, this is also in 113. Jesus was girded this way in Revelation 113. When they're girded this way, it's signifying their royal ministry, or we may say their royal priesthood. They also are ministering spirits, as Hebrews 114 says. 
Are they not ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Here too, they are royal, they are ministers, they do the will of God upon the earth. God sends them with His commission to accomplish His task. Verse 7, one of the four living creatures, these who are in greater proximity to God, closer proximity to God, these are the ones who gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. They have the wrath of God in these bowls. They're holding these bowls and in due time they pour out the contents of those bowls so that there is a plague upon the people of the earth. And these bowls are full of the wrath of God. God's wrath is built up and ultimately and one day he will pour it out and inflict his punishment on people. This is God who lives forever and ever. He's a God who ought to be reckoned with because he's eternal. After all, didn't Jesus say to, uh, to all of us in the face of persecution, Matthew 10, 28, and do not fear him, uh, and do not fear the one who is able to destroy the body, but are, is unable to destroy the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear him who is able to do so because he's the eternal God and the creator and the judge of the world. He's the one who lives forever and should be feared. People don't fear him, therefore his wrath is inflicted on them. Verse 8 and the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. The smoke comes, and this smoke signifies the glory and power of God. The glory and power of God. The temple is full of it, and no one can access that temple until God's punishment takes place. Until it's finished, no one can go back into that temple and be in the presence of God. Access to the presence of God only takes place when proper processes of holiness and righteousness and redemption, punishment, all of this has taken place. Then access to God is possible. This is the whole point of Hebrews chapters 5 to 10. Without the sacrifice of Christ, entrance into the presence of God is impossible in terms of enjoyment and worship in a full and complete sense. Now, chapter 16. Chapter 16 and verse 1. Here we'll see that the seven bowls of wrath are poured out. The seven bowls are poured out throughout this chapter. 16 verse 1. And I heard a loud voice from the temple saying, to the seven angels, go and pour out the seven bowls of the wrath of God into the earth. It's a loud voice that he hears, and it's from the temple. Because it's from the temple, it must be from God. And here, likely, it's from God the Son. Because it's saying here to the seven angels, who commissions and commands them, go and pour out the seven bowls of the wrath of God into the earth. The wrath of God Almighty is to be poured out and it come, this voice, likely the voice of the Son of God from the temple, commanding the angels to do so. This is a confirmation that the angels do not act on their own whims, 
They're not out of control and they're not doing evil. They're doing whatever God wants them to do. Verse 2. And the first angel went and poured out his bowl into the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore upon the men who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. A loathsome and malignant sore upon men who follow the beast, the Antichrist. This is the, the outcome of those who refuse repentance and instead are resolved to follow wickedness in the Antichrist. We know that the, the boils that come uh, can be sore. The Egyptians experienced this in Exodus chapter 9, 9 to 11. Even Job, a righteous man, not because of his wickedness, but as a righteous man and a test upon him, experienced this in Job 2, 7 to 8 and Job 2, 13. God does inflict plagues upon men to call them to repentance, to draw them near to Him, especially as we see in Exodus 9, 9 to 11. Whether this is literal or figurative, we do know that God does these things throughout history and even in our own time in order for us to wake up, to wake up from our stupor and, and slumber and repent of our sins. And here He does so. Verse 3, second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. The second one inflicts a punishment on the, the sea, but it impacts men and the contents of the sea, all the, the sea creatures. It says that the blood became like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. The, the blood of dead people is dangerous. It's poisonous. It's putrid. It will not help anyone. In fact, it is a, a stench and a poison that is very dangerous. Well, the second angel makes the sea like this. Makes the sea like this so that all, every living creature in the sea died. Devastation. Complete devastation. That means people cannot eat the fish of the sea. And if they try to, they will die as well. This is similar, as well as the next plague is similar to Exodus 7, 20 to 21, when Moses made the waters of Egypt turn into blood. And when it turned into blood, the Egyptians could not drink it. Same thing, punishment for wickedness. Verse 4, And the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. They became blood. This is, again, like Exodus chapter 7, Exodus 7, and even in Revelation 11, verse 6, Revelation 11, 6, the two witnesses have this capability, just as Moses did, the two witnesses do in Revelation 11, 6. They have the ability to turn that which is good for man into something that punishes man. There is a reversal. That which is good, water is good for us, it's turned into blood and dangerous for us because of wickedness. Verse 5, And I heard the angel of the waters saying, that is the angel who's doing this, inflicting this punishment. The angel of the waters says, remember this angel is one of the seven and is commissioned by the Son of God, commissioned from the temple of God to do all this. 
And this angel reiterates the fact that punishments, verse 5, righteous are you who are and who was, O Holy One, because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. This angel of the waters, this third angel, says, Righteous is God. He is righteous. He exists. He's eternal, who who is and who was. He's holy. And because he judges these things. He is the one who ultimately is the judge of all mankind. And why? Why does he judge wicked people? Verse 6 says, For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets. They poured out their blood, they executed them, they martyred them, they tormented them. Now they deserve to be tormented and put to death. You have given them blood to drink, they deserve it. God often gives people what they do. Whatever evil they have committed, God heaps that evil back upon their own heads. This often happens throughout the scripture. In fact, We have an example of Jesus saying this in Luke 11. Luke 11, verse 49. Luke 11, 49. He says, For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some of them they will persecute, in order that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the house of God, yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Blood that is shed, innocent blood that's shed, needs to be heaped back onto the one who shed that innocent blood. And the, the angel says, they deserve it. They deserve it. For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations, as you have done, It shall be done to you. Your dealings will return upon your own head. Obadiah 15. And then also, verse 7. In case we are unsure. Verse 7. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. It says the altar. The altar here is personified as as an object able to speak. It's personified because... It is a reiteration of what we've already heard in chapter 6, verse 9. Chapter 6, verse 9. And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? It is the prayer of the saints. It is the prayer of the saints that is being reiterated here in Revelation 16:7. We also have another example of this prayer or these prayers in Revelation 8:3. Revelation 8:3. And another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer and much incense was given to him that he might add to it the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. It's this prayer that is being answered. And the saints know that this prayer is being answered 
because they say yes to the angel and yes to everything that has pre preceded here and identify God as Lord God the Almighty, true and righteous. True and righteous. Similar to uh, 15.3 where it says righteous and true are your ways. They reiterate that fact and that this is the case with all of God's judgments. When God judges, we ought to acknowledge that He's true and righteous. However, we'll see that not everyone does so. The angels do so. The saints do so. The prophets do so. But look at verse 8. In these three plagues, we'll see that there are others who don't. They refuse. And the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. This fourth angel pours out the wrath of God on the sun, and that is the sun in the, in the sky, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. It is granted for the sun to torment men with fire. These men are those who refuse to repent. Now, whether this is talking about extreme heat, a famine, some kind of uh, miraculous judgment that God brings, or, or not in a literal sense or not, it is still indicating that these men are punished, but they don't repent. Verse 9, And men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give Him glory. In spite of this extreme heat, which it may be in a literal sense, because God does say in Deuteronomy 28, 22 to 24, that because people don't repent of sins, He will bring the fierce heat of the sun and famine and, and starvation upon people because they won't repent. This may yet happen in the future. And if it does happen in the future, there will be some people who do not repent in spite of of this fact. They won't repent. In fact, they blaspheme God. They blaspheme Him even though He has power to stop it. They slander God and they did not repent so as to give Him glory. Repentance did not occur and they did not praise God and thank God. In fact, they insulted God for all of this. It doesn't end, however, verse 10 the people continue in their obstinance. Verse 10, And the fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. They gnaw their tongues because of pain. There's a darkness that uh, overtakes the whole kingdom of the beast, the Antichrist. This darkness persists, and yet they don't repent. All that they do is they gnaw their tongues because of pain. There was also darkness in Exodus chapter 10. Exodus 10, 21 to 29. There was also darkness. In fact, uh, I failed to mention that even in Exodus, there was this, um, this infliction of the sun. In that case, it was the darkened sun. And in this case, in verse 8, it is the sun in its brightness that blazes and tort. Uh, scorches the men. But here in verse 10, the darkening of the sun, it caused fear and terror, but it did not cause 
repentance. It caused tear, uh, 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 fear and terror, but it did not cause repentance. Notice, whenever this happens in the scriptures, it's intended to call men to repentance because ultimately there will be an eternal torment in this way. Jesus said in Matthew 8, 12, Matthew 8, 12, But the sons of the kingdom, that is the sons of the kingdom of the, of the Antichrist, shall be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The gnashing of teeth or the gnawing of the tongue, still we're talking about grinding and biting, because there's no escape. There's no escape. There's nothing proper that we can do. We cannot conduct life normally. We cannot eat and drink normally. And there's darkness. There's torment and there's darkness in that place. The punishments of the earth, whenever they are like this, are intended to give us a foretaste of the punishment that's eternal. That's eternal. Jude says this in Jude 7, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. The fire and brimstone that Sodom and Gomorrah experienced because of their unrepentant sin was an indication and an illustration of eternal fire, according to Jude. They were literally punished and destroyed on the earth in the days of Abraham. And then literally there will be an eternal lake of fire right. where it's dark and where there is torment forever and ever. However, even when this is done, even when this is experienced, even when this is anticipated in preaching and teaching, verse 11, and they blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. They continue in blasphemy. This is the God of heaven. They, they are on the earth and God is in heaven. They have to look up to God. This is why sometimes prayers are with our eyes looking up to heaven and our hands held up toward heaven. But they refuse all this. They know it's the God of heaven, but they just insult him or blaspheme him because of their pains and sores. They don't repent of their deeds. They think their deeds are just fine. And they reject repentance. Verse 12, And the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up, that the way might be prepared for the kings from the east. Here a sixth angel makes the great river Euphrates. It's great in that it was the eastern boundary of the land of Israel. It was supposed to be. From Genesis, we read this, Genesis chapter uh, 15. Genesis 15 explains this as well as other places in Scripture. It was the eastern boundary of the land of Israel in the days of, of the kings of Israel. Especially in the days of David and Solomon, they were able to reach that boundary. However, that great river, huge river, its water was dried up, that the way might be prepared for the kings from the east. 
the waters are dried up, even though it's a huge river and it's hard to manage its waters. It will be dried up by the power of the sixth angel, so that it's dry and the kings of the east can come across it. It's dried so that it can come across it. We know that miracles such as this have happened in the past. Moses dried up the waters of the Red Sea by God's miraculous power. Elijah dried up the water of the Jordan by God's miraculous power. Elisha also did so by God's miraculous power. And even before them, also right after Moses in the days of Joshua, when the people crossed the Jordan, they crossed it on dry ground. They were able to do so. We have four examples there in the Bible, the sea and then the Jordan River three times. So this may be a great event of the future that takes place. And it says, so that the kings from the east can make their way. Now what will they do, these kings from the east? Verse 13, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. The frogs are unclean spirits. They are like frogs, unclean spirits, and spirits of demons. They are gross-looking, and they are persistently croaking, speaking annoyingly to the people, and they influence the people of the earth. That's the beast, I'm sorry, the, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. They are controlled by evil spirits, like this. This is what happens, and they are manifesting themselves like this. And they are preparing the kings of the whole world, or as in verse 12, the kings from the east, to come and to make war with God. The, those who are the enemies of the people of God are actually enemies of God Himself. And here we have a frightful and ominous day that awaits a day when they will make war with God by inflicting uh, a, a war uh, against the people of God. This is what they will do. Verse 15. We have here a, a, a parenthetical statement. Here we're, we're hearing about this ominous day, a day that is dreadful and fearful. But then notice what we're told. Verse 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments, lest he walk about naked and men see his shame. We're told here that Christ will come like a thief. He spoke like this in, in uh, chapter 3, verse 3, and, and verse 11. And he spoke of this like uh, as a thief, coming like a thief in Matthew chapter 25. And the Apostle Paul says Jesus will come like a thief in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Jesus will come like a thief. But he will not come like a thief to the church because the church will be prepared. Right. They will always be ready. But the unbelievers will be taken by surprise and he'll come like a thief. 
And it says, Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments, lest he walk about naked and men see his shame. He's speaking of us. He's speaking of us, we who will be blessed, because we keep awake, we keep our garments on. Keeping our garments on may be one of two uh, analogies uh, uh, in the Bible. Keeping your garments on would be keeping it on like a soldier, because a soldier always has to be ready, even in the middle of the night, ready for war. And he shouldn't be keeping his uh, garments off, his, his equipment and his uh, armory off, because if he does so too long, he won't be prepared for battle when the sound uh, of alarm is, is sounded. Or it may be the kind of garments that are of saints. Saints have their garments white, and they continue to put on righteousness as it says in Ephesians 4, 4, 17 to 25, that we're supposed to put off the old man or the old self, which is filthiness and wickedness, and put on the new man or the new self, which is being recreated, recreated in God, created in God for the pursuit of righteousness and truth. Verse 16 and they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Armageddon or Armageddon. Here in, in Hebrew he says it's called Armageddon. Now, Armageddon, if we're talking about the word Har, H-A-R, it would be a word that signifies a hill or a mountain. A hill or a mountain can be called Har. That's the Hebrew word. And Mageddon or Megiddo is a place in northern Israel. It's a place where many battles throughout history have taken place. And in this case, the final battle is said to take place there. Verse 17, And the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done! The seventh angel pours it out upon the air. And then when it's done in the air, it said, it is done. The te- a, a vo- loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. The voice of God comes out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. Similar to Jesus in Luke, or John, John 19.30 saying, it is finished. Here, it is done. Everything that God wants to accomplish is now done. Why would it be the air? The air. In Ephesians 2.2, it's said that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He is the prince of the power of the air. This might be the fact that God will finally conquer Satan. He will finally conquer Satan. And so God shouts with a loud voice, it is done. All of the enemies of man will be conquered. And Satan will finally, Satan and all of his demons also conquered. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. A great, uh, a great number of phenomena will occur. The number of them and the impact of them, that such an earthquake and such disaster occur that it will not be uh, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth, 
So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. This will be the greatest of all calamities that strikes. And people will be shaken. People will be uh, awakened out of their stupor. Verse 19. And the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. It says that the great city was split into three parts. There, there, there is much discussion about what this great city was and is or will be. Whether this is Jerusalem, whether it's Babylon, whether it's Rome, um, or whether it is something else. And whatever it is, it seems that in verse 19, the, the best argument may be that it is Babylon the Great, because what was said at, in general terms, the great city, is specified in verse 19, Babylon the Great. So it has to do with Babylon in this context. But then the next question is, is this Rome? called Babylon, or is it Babylon literally? In this case, I take it to be Rome, because in chapter 17, there are indications that Rome is identified here. For example, it says in verse 17, verse 9. 17, verse 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. The seven mountains, there are seven mountains in Rome, and this woman, Babylon the Great, is identified in chapter 17 like this. So, it says back to 1619 that this great city was split into three parts. It may be, according to Ezekiel 5.2, Ezekiel 5.2, that being divided into three parts means that God has assigned thorough judgment for this great city. This is the way he described the punishment of Jerusalem in Ezekiel 5, verse 2, that there would be three kinds of judgment that uh, would be inflicted upon it, and God would have a comprehensive punishment on the city. And notice, too, it says that, verse 19, that Babylon the Great was remembered before God. God does not forget. Yeah. God remembers... And when he remembers, he remembers for judgment. He remembers for judgment to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. The wine that they are made to drink, they are forced to drink God's wine. And God's wine, which they are forced to drink, has his fierce wrath in it. It will make them drunk. It will make them real. It will make them vomit. It will make them delusional. This is what it will do. They will not be able to overcome this wrath. The wrath will overcome them. Uh, verse 20, And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. Every island fled away, and mountains were not found. Perhaps too, similar to what is said about the earthquake, that there will be a complete destruction and devastation of the world, that the world will be reconfigured. In fact, that's what Peter says in Second Peter 3, that we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And he says that the present heavens and the present earth will be destroyed by fire. 
there will be complete devastation that it's going to be renewed. And Revelation 21.1 says that there will no longer be any sea because the first heaven and the first earth will pass away. No sea, no ocean anymore. Verse 21. Verse 21. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague uh, of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Huge hailstones. Hailstones are usually not 100 pounds each. Uh, in, in reading in the commentaries, they, uh, they have reported that the biggest ones reported in history are about 2 pounds heavy. But otherwise, they, they can be uh, big and round, like a golf ball size, or smaller than that, like the size of a marble, but they are not going to be 100 pounds. In this case, he says 100 pounds each, about 100 pounds. Why that weight? Why that weight? Well, the typical weight that pe people can carry, the average person can carry, is somewhere between 60 to 100 pounds, maybe a little bit over 100 pounds. Well, this weight, they will, this will be unbearable because it's going to come from the sky and this punishment will be unbearable. They cannot fend this off. They cannot ward this off. They cannot do anything. The Egyptians could not, in the book of Exodus, with the hail that came upon them, they could not prevent their crops from being destroyed. But in this case, people, people themselves, will be crushed and annihilated because of this punishment. Whether it's literal, they will not be able to ward it off. And even if it's figurative in that God's final judgment will overcome them, they will not be able to overcome God. They will not be able. Instead, what do men do? Verse 21, Men blaspheme God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Here again, we have people, instead of repenting, they complain and blaspheme God because of the pains they experience. No humility, only hardness of heart that overcomes them. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says.